Hello and welcome to Family Renewal. I'm Israel Wayne, your host. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as we take a look at faith, family, and culture, all through the lenses of a biblical worldview. This program is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Family Renewal Podcast. I'm excited today to have Linda Hobar, who is the author of the popular history curriculum, Mystery of History. We're going to be talking today about teaching history. And Linda, I want to welcome you to our podcast. Thank you, Israel. Great to be here with you. Well, you and I have known each other for a while on the convention circuit, and uh, we speak at a lot of the same homeschooling conferences, but I've never really had a chance to sit down and talk with you about uh, philosophy of education and teaching history and all of that, so I'm really Mm -hmm. excited about that for today's podcast. Uh, First question that I have for you is, what inspired you to get involved with writing history? Was that something you just grew up loving history as a student? Did you major in that in college or were you a teacher? I don't know enough about your background. So Mm. tell me what inspired you to start writing his curriculum. Sure. Well, it was none of the above. As a matter of fact, I was going to inform you there's two things you might want to know about me before I answer that question. And that is number one, I grew up hating history like so many kids. You know, it seemed completely boring and irrelevant because these were horrible, dry textbooks. Number two, I also grew up really not in the church. I did not come into a relationship with Christ until I was 17 years old. So that's my entire youth. I had no idea who some of these Bible characters were. They just were unknown to me. So the very idea that I would one day write biblical worldview, world history, I hope you see immediately shows that is the hand of God in my life, because it really comes out of a place of uh, deprivation. You know, it's what I didn't have growing up, which, by the way, I did fall in love with world history in college. It was a couple of professors that made the difference because they just told stories. So. But there is a bigger story. If if I could finish that, I will tell you the bigger story is this, that when I was in my 40s, there was a time and place I very specifically began to pray for about a year that the Lord would just uh, channel me, streamline me into something because I had a wide variety of interests. I'm kind of a high energy person with or without caffeine. And I just, I wanted there to be something more lasting. I wanted a legacy in my life. So I really was, I really did put it to prayer. So I share that with others that they might do the same and also be careful what you pray for because there came a day with a year of praying, there came a day I was in my kitchen chopping up vegetables when I really feel as if the Lord whispered to me the mystery of history. And I'm telling you, Israel, I knew immediately what it was. That to me was my calling. Uh, I give the Lord full credit for the fact that it rhymes. I never sat around to come up with that. It was like, wow, I I knew that the mystery was referring to that gospel, Mm -hmm. which was near and dear to me. We were missionaries at the time. Um, As far as history, again, I had fallen in love with it in college and, and was in love with the subject, teaching my own children, also a little frustrated with the materials I couldn't get just quite right. So when I heard the mystery of history, I'm like, that's it. That's the one That's the one um, venue for me to just bring all these loves together. And so kind of naively, I started in the beginning. And four volumes later, 
I've gone back to that place many times, like, Lord, did I hear you right? Because it's certainly been hard, but he's provided. Mm. So that's my story. Well, I think that's one of the things that people like about your curriculum. You mentioned that you had some professors who use stories. And I think that's one of the things that people enjoy very much about your curriculum is that it, it reads well as an interesting narrative, as opposed to um, a lot of textbooks are sort of a jumble of bits and pieces. And yeah. um, yours reads very much like a narrative that has flow and it's going somewhere. And I, I appreciate you mentioning that uh, that the gospel really is the central focus of all of history. Uh, and that really is what gives us the structure uh, and the outline. So, um, so, so speaking on that, you know, when you're looking at mm-hmm. history uh, from that viewpoint of history being God's story, the, the big overstory of all of, of time and history, how do you as a textbook author sort through the process? What's the mindset that you go into when you realize that you can't possibly tell all the story there is to tell. Um, and I think it, it may have been uh, John in the Gospels who says that we, we couldn't have possibly written down mm. everything that Jesus did or said. So you, you obviously have to leave some things out of the narrative. Um, did you have any kind of template or guideline that you used to decide what you would include in the history textbooks and what you leave out. I've just often thought about a written history curriculum myself. Sure. And I thought if I did, that would be something I would really struggle with is how do you deem what is important enough to tell in this textbook and what do you have to leave off? Cause you just can't tell it all. Oh, it's a great question, which frequently I am asked. So it's interesting when I first had the vision and started writing, I'm not sure that I had the template just right there. You know what I'm saying? I think it kind of evolved, but I will tell you what, after four volumes, I realized. So I do have four things I would say. There's, of course, a lot to the criteria, but if I had to narrow it down to four, first of all, I would certainly take what is what are the most common events in history and start there with a framework, which you're going to find in almost any history book that you test that you pick up. I particularly like the old history books, but you know, an easy internet search and you can find main events. And I certainly would want anyone that picked up my material to feel like they got the most important things that we'd all agree on, you know, that aren't even controversial, just, you know, those main events are going to be there. But far beyond that, as a historian, what I found is that there were certain layers that I found of interest that I felt more called to write about. So, for example, in volume one, the layer I wanted to add to ancient time, which real quick, let me tell your your listener that my volumes are divided into ancient, Middle Ages, Renaissance, Reformation, and modern. So that's important to know, volumes one, two, three, four. So adding to ancient times, I know I was most intrigued by Bible and world history. Again, why? From a place of deprivation in my life, I didn't grow up knowing Noah and Moses much less where did they fit in with Alexander the Great or Cleopatra, right? So I loved weaving them in together, you know, put them in the context of the Greeks and the Romans. So there's that. I also wrote, for example, an biography on every one of the major and minor prophets, because I certainly wanted those funny little names at the end of your Old Testament to be so much more than just funny names at the end of your Old Testament. I wanted students to see those as men who really had a message. They were called by God. So that would be my volume one, you know, special layer. Volume two, my special layer would be adding church history 
Why? Because again, that would be something I didn't know so well, but I wanted my children to really appreciate the church fathers and the missionaries. So that means I'm going to include lessons on Augustine and Patrick and Valentine and Boniface and Columba, Cyril and Methodius, some of these guys. Volume three, since it is the Renaissance Reformation, I would say most often people are going to keep American history out and just start that in another book, another volume. But I didn't. I wove early American history into the Renaissance Reformation, meaning I covered the explorers and Jamestown and Plymouth. And I'll tell you why that's a particular, uh, something particularly near and dear to my heart. That is this. I feel like students will forever deeply appreciate American history better if they have just had the overview of the Reformation. It's like you have to really understand the bloodshed of what was happening in Europe when people, Protestants or Catholics, are fighting to the death over creed and religion to really understand what those pilgrims were looking for when they came over. You know, they're willing to abandon all and sail over here. Um, So I like including that early American history in the same book where you find the Reformation. So anyway, and then the founding fathers, you know, they're descendants of the Huguenots and the Scottish Covenanters and the Puritans and the Separatists. So all that goes together. As for volume four, I would guess that special layer for me was, again, since most of my readers would be Americans, not all, we fortunately have a worldwide following, but I would say a large majority a majority are. So I wanted them to see American history in the context of world history and not, again, just pulled out. So my volume three and volume four literally are just back to back. And while we are not exclusively an American history course, there's a lot of American history in volume four because this is when the United States is on the world stage. So I guess one of my best examples of that would be a student would be studying the seven years war in Europe at one point in volume four. So we see this bloodshed in Europe. Once again, this is Frederick II. It's actually a pretty interesting guy. But then just two or three chapters later, you come to discover that the French and Indian War fought on American soil is clearly an extension of the Seven Years' War in Europe because the British and the French are just duking it out over here. Um, And so I think that world history expands American history in that context. So anyway, let me get back to my outline. I was saying you asked, what's my criteria? So first, there's just the general information. Second, there's the special layers. But third, sincerely, Israel, there was times I just prayed. I would just lay down my work sometimes, get on my hands and knees and say, Lord, what would you have me write about? Especially when it's like I'm running out of chapter space, you know, so what are those important things? And I'm telling you, he met me at least once for every volume in a special way. For volume one, I remember sensing the Lord leading me to Fort Ancient because I lived near there at the time. I don't know if you know what Fort Ancient is, but it's an old Indian dwelling of Native Americans who were on the continent of North America as far back as the days of Hezekiah. It's like, wow, that's really cool. And I need our we need our students to see just how long Native Americans were living here. You know, we don't think of them as being here during Bible times, but they were. In volume two, I was one day at a Bible museum and I looked on the counter and there was a book about a man named Bar Kokhba who was a false messiah. The reason that story was important, I felt like the Lord just led me to this book because it was literally when I picked up the book, I realized it was like it fit in the the week or, or month of exactly where I was in history. Um, but anyway, it's interesting because he was a Jewish man who 
claimed to be a Messiah because he was seeking to, to deliver the Jews from the Romans. And, you know, that's one of the reasons some Jews didn't follow Christ was because they falsely expected him to deliver them from Roman rule when he came to deliver them spiritually, not politically. So anyway, I found that little jewel. In volume three, I stumbled on Jean Dalbray. Do you know her, Israel? Have you met her yet? No. She's just one of my heroes. Jean Dalbray is a little woman from Europe who was a reformer. So she was a female reformer, had a little kingdom squeezed between Spain and France. I just thought that was kind of cool. And in volume four, um, let's see, who was it I had on your mind? I had several, but oh, I would say probably having the personal opportunity to meet Reverend Samuel B. Kyles. I met him here in Memphis. I live in Memphis, which is, of course, the city where Martin Luther King was assassinated. And Reverend Kyles was on the balcony with him. And for wow. uh, until just a few years ago, when Reverend Kyles passed away, he was the last living eyewitness to the incident. So God wow. just gave me that extra personal connection, which is very special. So prayer was a big thing. And then I actually do have a fourth one. This is just sort of a silly one, but... <laughs> My fourth criteria would be this. If I started to write about something and I found myself absolutely bored with it, out it went. I just tossed it because I'm thinking, I love history and I'm an adult, but if I'm finding this hard to get through and it's boring, then maybe it's just not really going to be that relevant and grabbing my reader too. So I tossed it. I have an example, but I don't know if I should share it with you. I don't want to scare off my readers, but you want to hear an example of one? Yes, please. Okay. One of them was I fully thought I should include the building of the Panama Canal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, yes, it's very important. If you start looking at the details, there's not really a very juicy storyline there. It is truly an event, not so much about a particular person. And so I gravitated away and I thought they'll probably get that in American history. So well, I'll just throw this in randomly. This is my ADD because I can. I, I wrote a book on um, Roosevelt and the, the Panama Canal and all oh. that. And I learned. <laughs> and that's the, what uh, I picked the, as an example. And you wrote a book yeah. on that? <laughs> well, well here's, here's the thing I remember. Here's the, the bit that I remember. Because, uh, you know, obviously the long book, lots of details, lots of numbers, lots of facts, whatever. But here's the thing that I came away with that I still remember was lots of people dying of malaria because of mosquito bites. And they sent this uh, scientist researcher guy down there that everybody thought was totally wacky. And he, f he had a theory that it really wasn't all the swamps and, you know, the, the larger general area that was causing malaria. It was mosquito larva that was within an acre of the house in which you lived. Oh. And so he just told everybody, clean out your gutters, look for buckets, dump everything, make sure there's no standing water within an acre of your house. And when he did that, malaria went way, way down. See, you should have written the chapter. You know, that one, that one missed it. That is interesting. That is interesting. And I, I might have kept it if I had dug a little deeper. So, you know, we historians don't get it all right. But at the end of the day, you do have to cut something. And yes, so one of my criteria would be if I didn't find a profile, particularly of an individual, then sometimes that would be the reason. Yeah, mosquito larva is probably not one of the most epic and most uh, seismic shifts in human history, but it came in handy. As I, The reason I bring it up, I had a discussion about it with my kids the other night. We live in Michigan, and I was like, you know what? I see buckets of water in our yard. <laughs> ah, go take care of that. So, so, so I was going to ask you what, what you feel or what your, um, your students feel makes uh, Mystery of History different, perhaps, than other 
curriculum programs, but you, you already touched on a couple of things. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that I heard you talk about is the way that you teach Bible history in your history as history. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed is that some programs almost subconsciously divide history out into here's Bible history, then here's real history. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, here's, here's real history and then here's church history. And I almost think that sometimes in separating out the teaching of it, that it can create a subconscious reaction in the student that maybe the Bible history isn't the same as real history uh, and maybe it's not on the same level and we don't treat it the same way. Your curriculum does. It treats it that this is actual history that happened in real time space. And uh, so that's that's one thing that I would say um, I, I've noted that is special and unique mm-hmm. about your curriculum. But what, what are some other things that come to your mind? Sure. And, and just circling back to what you just said, uh, that is a pet peeve of mine that we so often separate it. You know, we treat them like two separate subjects instead of putting it all on the same timeline. It is the experience most people would have because, you know, you have Bible history in Sunday school and then, oh, here's mm-hmm. world history over in a world history, you know, classroom or something. It's a matter history. of fact, I wrote an entire workshop on it. So I just have to put a plug here, but I've written a workshop called When Bible Bible history and world history meet face to face because when nice. we bring them together, it really does, in my opinion, just um, it, it just adds to the validity of the Bible, which is the best history book that's ever been written. But to see the names of some of the like the Assyrian kings that are both in world history and in our Bible, it's kind of like, oh, you know, anything that'll help strengthen our faith. But anyway, getting back to, I guess, just what some of my features are, what others would say about the curriculum. Let me say first I think it's important to distinguish with maybe any curriculum that it's really twofold. So picture with me that there's content over here and then there's Mm -hmm. format over here and you could have the best of one, but not such a good one of the other and it's going to sit or vice versa. So you may have great quality content, but just not a user friendly piece going to sit on the shelf or say it's really beautifully designed. The content isn't quite up to to par. It's going to sit too. So I guess I'd want your listeners to know that when this whole thing unfolded, which again was a calling, I mean, I really prayed to offer both to my user. I really, from the bottom of my heart, try to give the best content I could. I mean, I have cried and prayed over the lessons and uh, because I feel them. I'm a feeler, like to a fault. But then at the same time, I was also a homeschool mom with three real kids who needed to get through a school day and a school year. And so I tried to make it as user-friendly as possible for gals like me who, you know, I'm a Mary, not a Martha. That meant it was hard to say on top of things. So I tried to make it user-friendly. Therefore, if I could divide those two, I'll tell you what others most say first about the content. And I think the first thing people will comment to me is that they do enjoy my writing style because I took a conversational approach. I write like I talk. I sometimes whisper in parentheses, but I was just trying to be real and personal. I, you know, we we get enough texty stuff in our lives. So I just stepped as far away as I could from the encyclopedia approach Second, I do think it is the biblical worldview that I bring to the table. A lot of families are hungry for that. They really do appreciate seeing that um, because certainly in our world, it's very lost, you know, to continue to find the thread of God's sovereignty. I mean, we, we want to see that. We need to see that. It strengthens our faith. 
And then I would say another thing that I feel like is a strength, and let's go back to those four volumes, is, Israel, I'm not sure what kind of history you grew up on, but what I do now and what used to be, you almost have to do a paradigm shift to even arrive at it being a good thing. And here's what I mean. Back in the old days, a history book that you might have in elementary and then another you might have in middle school and another you might have in high school, those history books typically put the entire history of the world into one textbook, right? And so what you wound up with is a very boring textbook because there's no room for the stories that make history interesting. That's how you kill a history book is stuffing too much in it. So um, my program, like some others that are out there, I took an entire volume to write about ancient times so that there's room for the story of Cleopatra meeting Julius Caesar wrapped up in a bed sack, you know, instead of just saying she's one of the Ptolemies, which that is what most textbooks say. Most textbooks, I do this just for fun, Israel. Like if I'm at a garage sale and I find an old history book, I go to the index and I look up Cleopatra and a paragraph maybe is all you're going to mm-hmm. get. And it's like, oh, goodness, we need pages on this woman. Not that she's a role model, by the way. But anyway, she's fascinating. So um, anyway, back to the paradigm shift is if I think history is better presented. And I think one reason people like my program is because there are four volumes that are in chronological order. And by stringing it out like that, it it's better. that, And you can recycle them. You can hit them one, two, maybe three times through. So there's that. But if I may turn to format, which again, I tried really hard to make it as user-friendly as possible. And keep in mind, I had three kids who, by the way, were the ages of the trivium when I wrote. I had a younger student, a middle student, and an older student. So looking at what my own children needed, one of the strengths of our program is that it is designed for the whole family to use together. So Lord willing, you pull in everybody. You've got a four-year-old, you might have a high school, you may have grandma visiting, but People can, all ages can learn from history at the same time. Let's take the Trojan War, for example. You know, the littlest one may not get the bigger picture of it, but they're not going to forget about that horse, right? Or whatever, you know, and they can learn from the French Revolution. There's just something for everyone in history. But after every lesson, there are activities I provide to take their enrichment activities designed to take students further if there's time. And the little ones get to have all the fun, do the hands-on stuff. But again, they're learning with their senses. You're building memories. Then the next kid who's in the logic stage starts to put some together. And then the older student is far more on the rhetoric level where he's learning to define his own worldview and find a voice of reason and, you know, in a biblical worldview. So there are these activities. So families seem to love that because it's really a sofa subject. You know, there are some subjects that are building block subjects where you really can't have a second grader and an eighth grader on the same math program. Okay, you really can't because those are skill-based subjects that really need some stepping stones. But, you know, life sciences, nature studies, Bible, world history, those are those sofa subjects where you can pull everybody together. Doesn't mean they're not squabbling sometimes, but then you have the opportunity to work on family dynamics and relationships. So anyway, I'm losing track. Let's see. Other things people would say they like about my format is that I give your families weeks to run on instead of days. You see, days are a little confining and days aren't always realistic, but I do give you a week's worth of curriculum at a time so that you have about three to four days worth of work you can spread out over five. So I think that that's a strength. So there's some freedom. 
And the last thing I would say is that I like to look at the mystery of history as a buffet style approach to history. And what I mean is, I'm sure you can picture this, Israel, is when you go to some restaurants, you order off the menu. You're, you just have to take what they give you. You don't have portion control. You don't have side dish control. They, they choose it for you. But when you go to a buffet, right, you get to take your plate down and you get to pick how much you want and how many side dishes you want. And I feel that kind of describes the mystery of history because you go down the buffet line. And of course, first and foremost, it's like, get your meat, get your protein. That's our lessons. But you know, all the things that I have in the companion guide for you to do otherwise, they're really side dishes. They aren't going to make or break the program, but you add as little or as much as your family is in the right season for. You know, on a bad day, just listen to the audiobook. I know a lot of families that listen in the car to use their time wisely. But on a good day, add a couple side dishes like timeline work or mapping exercises, a pretest, a quiz. But sometimes you really want to feast. So it's like go all out and have literally a medieval feast, dress up with some enrichment activities, add some literature. I guess literature is kind of the buffet. Uh, I'm sorry, the dessert bar. But anyway, there's that. And so I think that that is truly one of its strengths is the flexibility it gives you. So it's fun. There's freedom and it's flexible. So my three F's. You mentioned the audiobooks. I love audiobooks and I listen to 10 audiobooks for any book that I have time to sit down and read. Wow. Last year, we were out in the conference circuit and we were actually away from home for over two months as a family. So I have my wife, our 10 children. I guess we had nine. Our oldest was working. Nine children, my sister. Uh, so we're out basically living in a van going from city to city across America. One of the things that my wife had the foresight to do was to pack a bunch of Mystery of History audiobooks in the van for us to listen to. And what was so enjoyable about that is it didn't feel like school. It mm -hmm. felt like we're listening to these adventure stories. And the other thing that was wonderful about it was it was so age appropriate for everyone because I was enjoying it. My wife was enjoying it. Our children of all ages were enjoying it and getting whatever it was that they could gain from the narrative. And so it was a great way for us out on the road when we were in conference season to still be getting that educational quotient, mm -hmm. if you will. Uh, but also here's the other thing that I liked about it with me traveling so much. Um, when my children are in the textbooks, I'm really selective and picky about what I buy to give them. Cause I think that's super important. I think the content of the curriculum is something that we should be as Christians really concerned about. Mm -hmm. uh, so content's important. And I, and I always go through and I, I look at it very carefully to make sure that it has the right kind of worldview that I want to present. But I don't get to engage with it, with them, say in history, uh, as they're reading the stories um, because of my, my work, right? I think it's probably true for a lot of men. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, I just want to throw a kind of word of endorsement in there for families that go on vacations or travel together, that those audiobooks are a wonderful, it won't feel like school. It will really feel like um, you're just listening to audio adventures. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think that the dads will enjoy then being able to converse with their children about the material because mm -hmm. you all heard it together. So thanks for that. In fact, some dads tell me that they'll literally listen to the stories maybe on their way home from work. So that when they walk in the door, 
they can have that other conversation about, um, you know, whatever Napoleon that they studied or something kind of fillies up on it. Because face it, as adults, many of us are coming to the table with lots of gaps in our history. I'd say most parents are learning along with their children, which is perfectly fine. In fact, it actually adds to, I think, the enjoyment of the whole experience. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think for all of us, um, there are things that we just don't know, things that we've forgotten. Uh, so being able to refresh our memory is great. So let me ask you this on the issue of content. Uh, a lot of parents who choose Christian education for their children are concerned about what they deem to be revisionist mm -hmm. history within textbooks in the government school system. Um, have, have you noticed those so you study obviously a lot of different text history textbooks and those kinds of things. Have you noticed those kinds of things in the textbooks? Do you think that's a valid concern? Are we are we overly reactionary perhaps uh, about those things? Is it necessary for us to have a history textbook that has a definitive Christian slant to it? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Good question. And I think if you are Wanting to stay true to a Christian worldview, it's a very valid question. And yes, there are some real concerns. But before I carry on about what some of those concerns could be, I certainly would want to separate out our, the difference I might feel about the people who feel called to serve in our private and public institutions. Um, I love them. That's some of my family and friends. And so as no knock to them, those who might dictate what the agenda of the material is, that's a different matter. So let me just separate those. Content. content here. Yeah, content yeah. Content. We'll just stay on that. But anyway, I always need to say that because, you know, I love my people that are teaching and serving. God love them. So, we does not hate on anybody. We're talking about content of textbooks. Yes. <laughs> yes. But in that material, oh goodness, yes, I feel there is a real agenda that would be being pushed. And just on one other thing is keep in mind most of those materials for one, are going to be written by committees. And so right there, you lose any um, personality to it. You lose the sense of a living book. So committees are tough because, you know, think about trying to screen something that you write past 50 people. You know, you wind up with a lot of cutting and chopping and, you know, it's that's a tough place to be for one. But then I also feel that those, again, hmm that they are overtly seeking to secularize world history, feeling it truly their obligation to do so based on misunderstandings of church-state separation, which I'm glad that it exists, but they feel that it's their obligation to completely remove any sense of sovereignty of God that we otherwise, you and I, would be welcoming to see in our history. And so by doing so, they certainly would delude and tried to completely strip the Bible of having any authority whatsoever, which is where we're going to build our moral basis. So yes, I'm very concerned with those institutions that are doing that. And let me add one more to that. I think that those with an agenda, particularly socialist, Marxist, one of the things that they would do, because I study them, is they get hung up on, uh, or they really try to move all of us from individualism to collectivism, but it's not necessarily what you think. Like when I read their material, I think that the socialist would try to pick on 
our value of individualism wrongly and say, oh, well, that's selfish and you're not doing such and such for the higher good or the common good. Well, that's not at all how I mean individualism. First of all, there's the golden rule. And yes, we always need to be caring for our fellow man. But when I speak of individualism versus collectivism, I'm referring to where does our value even come from? It is derived from one place and one place alone. And I believe that's from God. Genesis 1:27 says that we are made in the image, the very image of God. That is what separates us from the plants and the animals. And it's being made in the image of God, which is what gives value to every shade, ethnicity, shape, size, those of disability. There is value in being God's creation. So, but when you take the collective approach, which is what we see in communism and socialism, it devalues individualism and it says, oh no, for the greater good, blah, blah, blah. As a matter of fact, it's really implementing a survival of the fittest mentality. It's Darwinism. It's that, oh, well, since the strong ought to rule the weak, let's just speed up Darwinism and survival of the fittest. Let's just eliminate the weak. Uh, the individual. And that is then when a dictator feels he has the right to commit genocide. Look at the Holocaust. What was that? That was a speed up of Darwinism in their minds. They thought they were doing the world a favor to eliminate the ones they deemed weak. So anyway, one of my issues clearly is that. And you will see that, I'm afraid, in government-sponsored materials, you're going to see so much collectivism at the expense of individualism. But as Christians, I want to just perk your listeners' ears to that so that they'll recognize it. And again, go back to Genesis. Go back to where our value comes from, that we might fight for you know, just the right to live. I mean, euthanasia, abortion, that's still falling into collectivism. So anyway, that's my rant. As a matter of fact, this will tie into a gift that I have for your readers. So have them, not readers, listeners, so have them stay put because I do have a workshop on the dark side of socialism that I'd like to give them as a gift. Well, I'm excited. I've heard that you're working on that. And so I'm excited that, 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 you, that you have that available. And thank you for offering that. We'll make sure we get the uh, contact information at the end of the podcast here. So I think you brought up some really valid points. I think critics on the other side would say, okay, you're accusing institutional textbook companies of you know, creating a, a textbook that is promoting a particular worldview or, or agenda. Uh, but aren't Christians just doing that in a different way? Aren't you creating a revisionist textbook uh, where, you know, all the founding fathers of America are Christians, where America never makes any mistakes, mm-hmm. where uh, Christianity is always painted in a positive light, and you know, we never talk about some of the uh, terrible things that have been done in the name of religion or so forth? Um, how do you respond to? First of all, um, well, let, let me just let me just do this. Let me say, I've seen some Christian history curriculum that I think does do that. Mm-hmm. Sugarcoats, personally, mm-hmm. yeah, it sugarcoats it, and it does revise it in a way by by being so selective. And I think they're trying to compensate for the revisionism that they see, where it's trying to present uh, an anti-Christian perspective where the only time Christianity ever gets mentioned is related to the Crusades or the Salem witch trials, for example. They're trying to compensate for that and say, oh, but look at all the positive contributions of Christianity and look at all the the wonderful Mm -hmm. things that America does. And so they have a a very pro-Christian, pro-American perspective that 
they sort of promote to the exclusion of the bad thing. So right, how an do you overreach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the overreach, right? You're just you know swinging the pendulum back too far the other way. So, so in your curriculum, as you've tried to wrestle with those kinds of issues, um, how have you addressed some of those issues? And you know, if, if any come to mind, um, mm-hmm. there were just struggles for you with you know how do we how do we deal with these kinds of issues? You know, sure. Mistakes maybe church made or mistakes that we've made in our country? How do you address those things? I really like that question. So thanks for asking it. And my answer might surprise you, but I find this easier to deal with than you would imagine. And that is simply the fact that it doesn't take much research to find the flaws of every man, woman, or child who's ever lived because of the sinful nature of mankind. So Mm -hmm. I have found it extremely easy to not sugarcoat individuals in history. There was one man who lived perfect life, and that was Jesus Christ. So, but to expand on that, what I feel I honestly do with people, when I look at people and I'm thinking about, you know, I try to kind of line up their life as I'm getting to know them. I have them on this imaginary timeline and I'm sorting through their lives. And like anyone, I can't write all the details. So it's as if I take a snapshot down the timeline of their life. And for whatever reason, their name even made it into the book because of either something they contributed or maybe something awful they did. It could be either or, but there's snapshots of their lives. And so let's just say even the bad guys, I may take Mm -hmm. a snapshot of his childhood and let us try to have a little empathy for how he or she became that bad guy. Like Mm -hmm. Ivan, the terrible, who was grossly abused, uh, bloody Mary, who really had it rough. Oh my goodness. She was so emotionally abused. I'm a little soft on her, though she's not usually held up in history. But so I give snapshots. And so the same with the quote, good guys is even some of our best guys. And and I'm glad there are heroes and I'm certainly going to elevate the merits of those who deserve it. But we have to be honest about their shortcomings because in doing so, we're only reminding our children that we are saved by grace, not by our works, that none are righteous, no, not one. We all need salvation and beyond salvation, sanctification. So clearly when I'll pull out some names and you'll you'll know all these, but when we look at King David in the Old Testament, well, here's just great King David, but we all know he did commit adultery with Bathsheba, so let's not leave that out because we have these beautiful outpourings in the Psalms of what repentance looks like. Um, let's see, another one would be the fact that Jonathan Edwards, part of the Great Awakening, but struggled as a slave owner, wasn't sure what to do with that. Mother Teresa even struggled with her faith at times and admitted that. Nelson Mandela, an incredible Um, hero, but yet would turn around and be pro-abortion, which would be very offensive to those who are pro-life, including myself. Um, Even Dr. King, who I greatly admire, um, struggled with fidelity. That was not a secret. So yes, we can have heroes and we can have some role models, but we've got to see them for who they are, which is men, women, um, only redeemed by the grace of God. So actually, that that is kind of um, an interesting part of what I do, I think, is finding those snapshots and giving them, you know, the right amount of attention. And I think one reason, again, it's so important that we not idolize people falsely is because, for one, they're going to let us down every time, right? Just about the time you think you have a, a hero, you learn something about them. But, you know, we serve a very jealous God, who really wants us to love him and him alone. And so, yeah, he makes it pretty easy for us to find fault with each other. But back to just some difficult subjects, I would say there are definitely some 
I wrestled the most with, so I'll rattle them off, volume one, ancient times, certainly trying to write of the crucifixion. Oh, just not an easy thing to do. I, I did it with through a lot of tears. In volume two, probably the most uh, difficult topic would be the Crusades, particularly the Children's Crusade, because, you know, I'm writing for children. It's kind of hard to tell that story. Volume three, oh, how I moaned and groaned and ached and fast and prayed through writing about the Reformation, um, just out of love for, you know, the whole body of Christ and Christendom, which was split. Um, let's see, in volume four, it's probably a tie between writing about Darwinism and Marxism, because both are out to destroy what I value as in faith, freedom, and my family. So probably a tie on that one. There was a few others, but those are some highlights. Well, I appreciate how you've always sought to be honest with the history and to present it in an engaging and interesting way. Mm, and I want to encourage people who may not be familiar with Mystery of History or have heard it, but have never really um, checked out your materials to find out more about what you do. So what are Thanks. some ways that people can connect with you and, mm -hmm. you know, feel free to talk about anything new that you're producing sure. or working on or just uh, ways that people can learn mm -hmm. more about what you're involved in. Mm -hmm. Well, for one, we are a small family business. Now I have a publisher, which is Bright Ideas Press, but I'm also a carrier of my own materials. So we greatly appreciate the support appreciate the support of our family business, which is themysteryofhistory.com. Don't leave out the the, themysteryofhistory.com. And on that site, you'll find loads of information, a product video that we made while we were in quarantine. You know, the, the you know, what do you do when you're in quarantine? Well, when you're married to a video guy, you make a new video. So we did that. And there's a way to subscribe to my newsletter blog hope that folks would do that. But also one of our new tabs on our website is that we've recently restructured our online classes. Israel, I'm not sure if you even knew I teach online, but I teach volumes three and volumes four live. I also have self-paced versions of that. And for those who could per who could not participate in live or self-paced, I also just sell our standalone lectures that are derived out of it. So again, for the family on the move like yours, there's a good choice because, you know, the commitment to a meeting regularly live could be a challenge. Anyway, so we have all those. So that's under online classes and lectures. Please look. Then I'm not sure if you knew that our volume one has been released now in a colorful hardback. So it matches volumes three and four. And we're working on that with volume two. And then last, just as a result, again, of the pandemic and the fact that you and I can't be at these conventions, which I miss and I love because I like to get my arms around folks and hug, meet their kids. It's wonderful being out there. But since we have not been able to, I brought a lot more of my workshops into video and audio format. So I hope that folks might look into that just if you need a little, I don't know just to kind of dig deep into something over the summer or for the fall. As a matter of fact, why don't I talk about that gift I have for your listener? So I have an MP3 audio of The Dark Side of Socialism. I worked real hard on this. I had hoped to give that live all over the country this summer. So far, I only had one opportunity. That was Nashville. That was before everything got shut down. There still may be a couple of opportunities. But if you'll go to my website, themysteryofhistory.com, go to my workshop store, look for the dark side of socialism, drop it in your cart. And if they'll add the code 
Israel without a capital I, just all lowercase, your name, then they can get that for free. And it's just an hour long presentation that I was actually able to give in Nashville. The expiration date would be July 31st. So they don't want to wait too terribly long. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that. And for those that don't know how to spell my name correctly, it's I S R A L A E L, not E A L, I S R A E L. Uh, and uh, what about social media? Can people connect with you on social media? Yes, I am a little too active on Facebook right now, but that's because I'm at my desk all day long. So find me at the Mystery of History. I also have an active Pinterest. I also have Instagram, though I'm not so good on it. I just don't carry a phone around much. So I lag a little bit there, but Facebook's probably a good place to connect with me. Excellent. Well, Linda, this has been engaging and informative. I, I think it's definitely, uh, hopefully, um, piqued the interest of a lot of people to check out your wonderful resources. Thank and thank you for taking time today to come and talk with us about um, how we can teach history better. And I, I know I'm looking forward to uh, getting some of the resources. We, we have most of your resources, but uh, some of the new stuff Good. we're excited about seeing. So, uh, thank you and uh, look forward to seeing you you're again welcome. once you're all allowed to get out of the house again mm -hmm. and go back to, to doing events once again. Well, I tell you, now more than ever, history is important, is it not? I mean, right. we have got to be praying for our country. We're under so much attack. So history. We're making it right now, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Got to know it. Well, Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, hopefully we'll do like the rest of history and God's people will give us something to talk about, about what God was doing. There's always plenty to talk about, about what the bad guys did, but uh, hopefully we can be part of our generation of, uh, of Bible. Mm -hmm. declar declaring what God's doing. Yeah, yeah. Take that mercy. Uh, Thank you yeah, again. All right. Thank you, Linda. Thanks, God Israel. You. you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation. For more information on Family Renewal, the writing and speaking ministry of Brooke and Israel Wayne, please visit FamilyRenewal.org.